All right, let's get started. Sherry yeah. has 11 pages of notes. We're going to be here all night. Right, and most of it's commentary. Um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. On June 13th, 1977, Lori Lee Farmer, Denise Milner, and Michelle Goose were found dead at what was supposed to be a fun camping trip with the Girl Scouts. It is one of the most horrific crimes to ever happen to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And to this day, people in Broken Arrow are plagued by what happened to Lori, Denise, and Michelle. All they want are answers and to bring justice to their families. I mean, it's been almost 45 years since this tragedy happened. And this week at the Chalkline, we're taking a deep dive into ABS. I don't know. Is it ABC? <laughs> Sherry. Yeah, ABC. We're taking a deep dive into ABC News Studios' Keeper of the Ashes, the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. We cannot do one thing right. No! <laughs> Not even one. We are your hosts, Sherry Ferreira. And Helen Allen. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. I said, um, okay, wow, I nailed that, and I did no, it. <laughs> That's what you get for being cocky yeah. beforehand. Right. And, okay, immediately a side note. So, one of the girls' names is Michelle Goose, but it's also pronounced Goose in the doc, so I just went with Goose. It's pronounced both? Well, oh, like so, by different people? Yeah, by different oh, people. Oh, God, I got it. Okay. So, it's not clear how to pronounce it. I'm going with Goose. Okay. Her first name is Michelle, and we will be calling her Michelle. Okay. I like that better anyway. Right. Okay, so let's get into my preamble. Yeah. Oh, my God, you guys. She wrote a whole constitution here. I, I've been here for days. I was just really excited. I mean, it's a four-part docu-series called Keeper of the Ashes. It's on Hulu, and it's with Kristen Chenoweth. Immediately, I was like, why are you here? And from what I've seen from the vibe, it's basically she's kind of the host a little bit. She talks about her experience growing up in the same town of broken arrow oklahoma with these girls and just talks about how that affected the town and her and Mm -hmm. she pops in here and there i'm not gonna bring her up too much but i do love that she's like shedding light on something like she's not one of those famous people that just got famous and then thought she owed nothing to her community i love that she is doing it justice by bringing this case to light and talking about it. So Kristen explains that the doc is called Keeper of the Ashes because at the last day of each camp, one of the girls becomes the Keeper of the Ashes and she keeps the ashes of the last bonfire. And in the intro, she goes, they've been smoldering for decades now. It's time to put them out. Kristen? Period. I was like, Kristen, you better solve this fucking shit. She is nothing but an actress. Right. So we hear more from Kristen, right? And she says that she was actually supposed to go on this trip with the Girl Scouts where the three girls were murdered. Oh my God, the same time? The same time. The same trip. She actually went to school with one of the girls. She went to school with Michelle. Oh, that's um, so devastating. And so it's, she has like a real connection, you know? Like, yeah. it's it's crazy. And in your <laughs> notes, you wrote, can anyone confirm that? Because I was jumping ahead of myself. I was like, Chris, Miss Kristen, what is this? What is this nonsense? But <laughs> I love it. No, she was supposed to go on the trip, but she got sick, so she backed out last minute. Wow, I wonder if that's why she feels like she needs to do this case so much justice. A hundred percent. She definitely feels it very close to her heart. She, I mean, she has a tie to this. Yeah, and at its core, like, jokes aside, this is a very devastating case. Um, 
I've heard of this case before. I haven't heard it in a while, though, so I'm excited to hear um, what you have to say about it and what the documentary had to say. Good. Kristen off the bat goes, I was of the same age, coulda, woulda, shoulda been on that trip, which made me giggle a little bit because she has this little country, like, accent, and it was just like, yeah. Ugh. But it's so sad because she- No wonder your thing is 11 pages. I'm sorry! All you want to do is talk about Kristen Chenoweth. <laughs> I'm sorry! Okay, no, we'll, we'll be done. We'll be done. We'll be done. Um, <laughs> but she is from Oklahoma, and to those of you- don't know because I didn't know. Oklahoma is right above Texas. Okay. So just yep. right there in the we, south. Yep. The girls all stayed at a camp called Camp Scott. It was opened up as a camp for the Girl Scouts, like the troop organization. For... Oh, nice. Yes. In but... 1928. It's located in the Cookson Hills, which is notorious for being really woodsy and dirt paths. Like, think of the woods in Twilight, but if instead of paved roads, it was all dirt. It's very that. Just really okay. dense, dense <laughs> forest woods. Girl who's never left Connecticut. Think it's of the woods in Twilight. Twilight. You know that movie? <laughs> I'm just such a city girl. No. <laughs> um, and this camp is located in Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Okay. So in the intro, I say that this tragedy really happens in Broken Arrow because that's where all the girls are from. Okay. And while some reports might say Tulsa, it only does that because Broken Arrow is a suburb of Tulsa. Right, and people like what's familiar, and we've all heard of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Exactly. At the time of this case, Broken Arrow had a population of about 35,000. I really got a small town vibe from them, so I was curious mm-hmm. as to how big it yeah, was. It's definitely And if it was big. close in it, in it, and at the time, I could, t- that's not a lot. We hear from a number of people just giving these heartbreaking testimonies about how this affected their town and they just give different recounts of how the crime like affected not only them but the state as a whole like it really shook everyone up one of them his name's tim stanley he's a current um reporter and he attests that it's still affecting the state in so many ways to this day Mm -hmm. and mind you this hulu doc literally came out i think a week ago or something so it's you're very on it's very present day it's still active in people's minds we also hear from journalists who covered the case way back when in 1977 way back when (laughs) I mean, isn't that so far back? Uh, to us. To yeah. me. Yeah. yeah, to me. I'm just that bitch. Sherry, so what like... do you mean to you? I wasn't alive in okay, the good. 70s. Okay, good. I didn't Sherry, want to be the only girl that's I'm like... just a few years older than... <laughs> a few years? Don't age me. <laughs> that's where I thought you were going. <laughs> so these two veteran journalists talk about how when this case did reach Broken Arrow, it just demanded constant attention just because of the sheer brutality and senselessness of it all. And for lack of a better words, the case just really went viral. It blew up. It caught everyone's attention of these three girls on this trip that is so, like, meant for bonding and exploring your, like, self and making friends. And not to mention they were babies. Like, you know what I mean? They're little girls. That's, like, the most innocent thing that they could have been doing was going on this Girl Scout trip to learn about values and love. It's so heartbreaking. Right. One of the girls was eight years old. Her name is Lori Lee Farmer, and we hear from her parents, Sherry and Beau Farmer. And in my notes, I have, hey, twin. Um, (laughs) It's Sherry. Yeah, because it's Sherry. Yeah, you guys, it's not spelled the same. She's getting a lot of air in her head here for no reason. It's... Just drop it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Done. (laughs) Sherry and Beau talk about Lori Lee, and she was their first child, and one of their favorite things about her is that she just loved their huge family. They had seven kids in total. No, I'm sorry, my bad. They had five kids in seven Seven. years. Oh my God. Yeah. 
So real she was never quick. Not pregnant. Never took a break, that woman. Damn. She must be tired. She must be tired. They talk about how excited she was for packing for the Girl Scout trip. They left at noon to drop her off and all the buses were there. Everyone had their little bags. Like, it's just all this excitement bubbling around the trip. Yeah. The, the excitement around what is, like, arguably a really pivotal moment for these girls, like we were talking about, It's for some of them, it's their first night away from home. And it's just really a chance to like explore how you are independently from your family yeah and it's like i remember girl scout sleepovers when i was little they are like the ultimate like ooh, i'm a big yes it's like you just feel like a little ooh, like a little so buzz fun. and every child deserves to experience something fun like that and not have it be taken from them in this horrible way so that was Lori Lee, and she was eight years old at the time. Now we get into Denise Milner, who was 10 years old, and we hear from her mother, Betty Milner. I love Betty. Let me just start off by saying that. Okay. In this doc, she is my favorite. She is the moment, and I love her so much. Betty explains how Denise was really giggly and like very smart. She taught herself to read and write when she was four and she just wanted to be doing everything. And she was just one of those people how you could go anywhere in the world and make a friend. Aww. And she was like, mom, I don't want to leave. I just made my new best friend. I can't leave oh right now. Oh my God, I love her. <laughs> right? I was like that too as a kid. Not many people are like that. No, it's very rare. And Ugh. I just, I love it. Cause I was yeah. very talkative. <laughs> I know, me too. That's why we were always like, okay, that person's a dud. Should we just hang out together? Right. <laughs> still like that we didn't grow out of that <laughs> love it her mom said like you should go on this girl scout trip she was really pushing denise because she didn't want to go i read in an article that she was supposed to go with some other friends of hers but they ended up backing out last minute so denise really was not here for this trip uh, like did well, not yeah, want to go she's a little older than the other girls yeah when she was leaving to get dropped off on the bus um like she you could visibly tell she did not want to go so one of the assistant counselors there said she would keep an eye on her and she would help denise call home if she ever felt homesick which i thought was very sweet the assistant notices that she's very quiet and seemed like she had an old soul and i'm like denise you're not fooling anyone your mom already told me how chatty you are okay i was gonna say the same thing you are you're not fooling me she's one of those extroverts that's very selective and i don't blame her right i can also be that way right (laughs) Michelle Goose was nine years old at the time, and it's never stated why, but her family aren't in the dock. I mean, I've only watched the first two parts, but so far they're not in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe her father is dead, but little is known about her whole family. Mm. I found one report from a news station based in Oklahoma City that says that Michelle had actually attended the camping trip a year prior, and that she was very shy and very athletic with a love for plants. She was a plant girl. (gasps) Not me. Not me. Cannot be Michelle me, Michelle. Cannot Michelle be better me. work. Cool, Michelle. That's a cool nine-year-old trait. Right? Like, even... Being a plant girl at nine years old. And a committed plant girl. Because before she left for the trip, she told her mom, George Ann, to take care of her plants while she was away. Like, she said, she... mom, don't let those die. Yeah. Okay? You have one <laughs> Literally. job, mom. You have one job. Literally. When I'm gone, my plants better still live. Right. One of the main camp counselors on the trip, her name was Carla Wilp... Wilhite? We're going to call her Carla. And this was actually her first summer as a counselor there. She's been with the Girl Scouts for years. And she is the one who finds the girls' bodies and sort of tells us how everything goes down Mm -hmm. that first night of the trip. Because this accident happens on the first night of the camping trip. Oh, God. 
To even get to the camp, like I said, it's really hard because it's the middle of basically bumfuck nowhere. Um, So you hop on the highway, essentially make a turn, and you're immediately met with a, quote, cookie trail, which is basically just a gravel and dirt road. Okay. Laura Lee, Denise, and Michelle were all staying in the same tent. And in the dock, it's referred to as a unit. So unit and tent are the same thing. Just letting you guys know. Okay. Yeah, because I always pictured them as, like, little cabins. Yeah, no, they were, like... Like, parent trap cabins. Mm, not to that extent, but they weren't just tents on the ground either. So they okay. had sort of, like, a base a of wood. A platform thing and then a tent? Yes. Okay, got it. Each unit was dispersed a couple hundred feet from each other. They were just spread really far apart, and because the woods were so dense, it was just really hard to see in between each cabin. And the tent that the girls were staying in was the furthest away from the um, counselor's tent. Mm-hmm. So it was literally directly across... Okay, so the easiest to access without getting in trouble. So Carla gives us the timeline, which, if you guys don't remember, is the camp counselor. This is... I'm going to start by telling you guys about the night before, which is June 12th. The night before, it was very hot and very humid. In fact, during the dinner, a huge storm came in. So the girls sang um, one of their camp songs that's traditionally sung outside, inside... And eventually it did go away. And it said that they had to hike back to their units. The girls were still um, pretty amped up after dinner, like just very active. And Carla recalls how it was like a lot to deal with because at one hand, you're comforting girls who are spending their first night away from home. You're helping some girls write letters to home. And she's just trying to wrangle them all in. Denise immediately picks up a pen and paper and her mom is like reading the letter. And the first line is, dear mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. Oh my God. That's so so cute because what a cute little angsty girl. I know. But at the same time, how heartbreaking for her mom to like know that the last place she sent her, she was not happy. No, and fully. And you can like that much you can feel from hearing her mom talk about it. Carla woke up twice that night. Once because a tent full of girls were being very loud, and the second time she heard a noise. Now, Carla recalls that this is nothing like she has ever heard before. It wasn't exactly an animal, and it was coming from an area near their unit. More specifically... um, Near the girls' tent? Like, Lori, Michelle, and Denise's tent? It's not stated whether it's exactly close to them. I know there is a dirt path that runs sort of close to the camp in general. And I think that's where she was hearing this from. Okay. Um, So she goes over to investigate and shines her flashlight, but she couldn't see anything. What was interesting, though, was the noise would stop as she got closer. And when she turned around to walk away, it would start again. And she says that she probably did this two or three times and she still hears this noise to this day. Oh she describes God. it as something in between a growl and a moan. And she backed away in fear and obvious has a ton of regret and guilt over not going further to investigate. But I mean, in her mind, it's like an animal. Right. You know, your mind doesn't immediately... Can I also just say I never want to be a camp counselor? Like, no. even if it's like for my kid's field trip, I'm going to be like, yeah, you're not going. And also I'm not volunteering. No. Because no. No. Absolutely not. Danger in the woods? No. No. Not for me. No. So whether or not she went to investigate fully, she's already braver than me, 100,000%. So we get to the morning of June 13th. Carla wakes up at around 6 a.m. And as she's walking out of her unit, she looks to her right and sees something in the road. 
and it was a couple of sleeping bags sort of to the side. And she just thought, wow, I should clean them up so they can like dry out because it was raining. She's probably like, those fuckers took their sleeping bags out Yeah, of <laughs> she's like, what kind of bullshit? This is my first job as a camp counselor. These freaking, ugh, like. Sleeping bags stay in the tent, people. That's right. That's probably what she was thinking. <laughs> she's like, I'm going to have to make a whole speech at breakfast. I know. She's like, I'm not going to let this one slide. Not right away, at least. Right. Carla. But as we know, um, she got closer and she could see the figure of a young girl lying partially on the road and partially off. The girl was unclothed and the closer she got, she could see the young girl was dead. Her first thought after that was this girl must have gotten scared and ran to a tree or something. Just like trying to make sense of what she was seeing. I'm so sure like her state of shock was like, there's no way anything except for just like an accident happened here just an accident and you know you know just one girl this is crazy so she she runs back she wakes up the other counselors and she's like guys we need to do a head count right right and after doing that they physically touched everyone's heads they realized that there was no one in tent seven which is where laura lee denise and michelle were staying in oh my god that's horrifying Carla starts running and wakes up the director and her husband, who um, is an emergency room nurse. So I'm like, okay, good. Like, someone who's a little familiar with this, let's get him out there, you know? So the director's husband was the one who discovered the other two girls in their sleeping bags. He looked around more and found them. So there's one girl lying in the middle of the road, and then there's sort of this pile of sleeping bags underneath a tree to the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And when he opens up, he discovers that the two girls were there and they were um, pushed down into the bags. Oh my God. It looked to him like they had been murdered and it definitely wasn't an accident. It, like right off the bat, he can tell something malicious happened here. The girl on the road ends up being Denise and Lori Lee and Michelle were in the sleeping bags to the side of the road. Mm. They immediately call the police and the counselor wants to remove the kids from the camp like ASAP. She doesn't want anyone seeing this, obviously, and she wants to bring everyone home, but they don't want them to pass by the bodies. They wake up the rest of the kids and pretend that they're um, mad. Like, I don't know why this is what they went to, but they- I'm just thinking, like, she had to put on a counselor face that day and, like- all of, of all the trauma that she personally witnessed, though, like, seeing the first body, and then she had to still go back to all those rest of those kids because she had a job to do. I just, like, what a hero she is. No. Tr- and, I mean, every single responder, like, the director, the husband, everybody, but but what a hero. Like, I just... I mean, truly, because you're having all this in your head, like, oh, shit, like, this malicious thing happened and I heard a noise last night. Could have that been it? Yeah, and like, I have to talk to the police. I have important things to tell them. But first, I have to make sure that these kids are safe. Right. It's, we love Carla. They woke the kids up and pretended that they were mad for keeping them up late last night. And as a punishment, <laughs> they had to take them all on a morning hike. Oh, she's so normal. No, she's totally. Like- <laughs> they took them on a hike and sung different songs, just like doing different things to divert their attention away from the road where the girls were mm-hmm. and they just took them to different sections of the camp so while the girls were out being distracted the executive di- the executive director called the buses to come pick up the girls okay we see footage of buses leaving with the girls and it's just really 
it, I don't know why this visual stuck in my head, but all you can see are swarms of cameras. Because at this point, the police arrive and like media, different sure. media. And yeah. all you see are these huge like old, like cameras on people's shoulders mm-hmm. following the buses. And I just can't help but think like being young and seeing that police officers and media, like you have to... I don't know how fully developed, but like it's just we. I can't imagine I'm how sure weird that must like, have been. Either they've like suppressed the whole day, or it's traumatizing for them to think about. Right? Like I can't imagine that not giving you a bad feeling of being like, "Why are we leaving early?" and like mm-hmm. all this happening. It's just it was a sad thing to think about, and the yeah. image really stuck with me. We get into the initial stages of the investigation. The sheriff at the time, his name is Pete Weaver, and he says that there's no indication that they were dragged away from the tent. So he believes that they were killed in the tent and then taken to the dirt path. Okay, so like he didn't see any blood track or something like yes, that. Yes, yeah. Okay. Now, there was blood on the outside of the tent, specifically toward the top or like the ceiling where it meets a point. So the current sheriff comes in, his name's Mike Reed, and he says that he believes the girls were carried over the um, piece of shit's shoulder. So, and like, so, what, did he just get tired and he left one of them, like, in the in the road? I don't understand why they would oh, wait, be... We'll get into that. Okay. We will. All right. But he believes that they were carried over someone's shoulder because the blood hit the top of the tent. And also because the girls' bodies were all sort of pushed, pushed down. down. Okay. So this new sheriff, Mike Reed, took office in 2013. I included this as a note, but immediately he gets a call from one of the families about the case. Like, in 2013. So in 2013, it wasn't solved yet? No. Okay. And for more information about that, you're going to have to listen to part two because this is a two-parter. Okay. (laughs) so annoying. I was really proud of that. Uh. (laughs) But the new sheriff in 2013, like, still has that same feeling of urgency. So he looks them in their eyes and he said that he is going to do his very best to solve this. Mm -hmm. Back to where the girls are from in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, the news breaks and the parents are just freaking out. Mm-hmm. because the identities of the girls had not been revealed yet. So we see footage of the oh parents God, waiting to pick up. That is just horrifying. Right? I mean, they're waiting to pick up their kids from the bus. Then the buses are delayed an hour. Aggravating, right? And so they're facing the thought of, what if my daughter doesn't step off that bus? Yeah. Like, they're all just waiting there anxious, anxiously. Um, it's It was just so heartbreaking. Yeah. Part one leaves off as they're exploring the crime scene. Okay, because I was going to say, ugh, how annoying. Yeah. I don't but... like being left out to to speculate. Oh, then you're going to hate, hate me by the end of this. Ugh. <laughs> okay. Part two. We meet with Harvey Pratt, who is an Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation agent. He's now retired, and he was 30 years old at the time. But for future, when we do reference him during this episode, we're just going to call him OSBI agent. Okay. His name's Harvey Pratt, but I just think it's easier to say OSBI agent. Why? Know? But okay. <laughs> that's just the, that's just the twisted way my mind works. Honestly, to take the more complicated route, I know. Just, just call him like Harvey. Harvey. Pratt. You know, we're gonna whatever. call him Harvey. <laughs> no, I didn't mean to diminish. <laughs> okay. It's Harvey. Okay. Back at the crime scene, they find a couple of things. The first thing they find is a flashlight that the attacker left behind, which was laying next to Denise. What's interesting about this is that the flashlight had a black trash bag around it and a little hole in the front to concentrate the light so it wouldn't be as bright. Oh, okay. 
So you sort of made like a little funnel, essentially. No, we get it. Okay, good. <laughs> it was I'm clear just... the first. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> this was all near the bodies, um, like I said, which is outside and near that dirt path. They also found glasses, hairbrushes, and compact cases. Like makeup? More like just um, not makeup, just like a bag, like, those like a little makeup things? bag. No. Oh. Oh. No, okay. just like a storage bag. What do I know? Nothing, but it's okay. (laughs) When I heard compact cases, I thought makeup too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I thought makeup too. No, no, it's okay. And then I saw the picture Uh, and I was like, Sherry. Okay. I'm not sensitive. Okay. Thank you. In the tent, they find blood on the floors, on the flap of the tents, in their cots, and they also find footprints. Now, Harvey showed up after police, and at that point, no one had opened up the bags because. They were zipped closed. And he was like, you morons, they might still be alive. Open that shit up. Mm. Are you an idiot or what? Is this your first day on the fucking job? I'm OSBI, bitch. Open that shit up. He did not say all that. But in my mind, I he did. I wouldn't have assumed he did. Because how frustrating. <laughs> you don't have to clarify that for me. And I think... I don't want to say this next part. It was during my chaotic note writing. Yeah, there's so many things that when Sherry's actually delivering the case, she skips over from her notes because she's just like, yeah, and the, at the time it seemed right. But. At, <laughs> I care about you guys and I don't want to, you know, you know, so I'm trying to save you from that. Maybe one day we'll release her notes. Oh my God, no. <laughs> you think, you, you need to see later on. Um, oh God. The county coroner shows up to open the bags, and we also start to hear more about their working theory. Okay, what is it? Investigators believe that someone during the night had come in through the back of the tent, and that the initial assault on the three girls happened in the tent. Okay. So, Lori and Michelle were murdered first because when the coroner does open up the bag, he noted that they were cold to the touch. Mm. Now, Denise was murdered, but it was also found that she was sexually assaulted, and when they went to... um, see how her body was she was warm to the touch so they thought that she had just been murdered recently so but did they are they still thinking that she was murdered in the tent or do you think that she was murdered where she was found they they she was murdered where she was found they think that so the the initial officer was wrong in saying that yeah but they all three of them were murdered inside the tent okay they now believe that laura lee and michelle were murdered inside the tent and denise was you know brought to the dirt path and mind you, Carla's went, Carla's alarm went off at 6 a.m. So they think that whoever did this heard it and started running off and that the only mistake he made was leaving behind the flashlight because everything else was pretty much, um, it wasn't a lot to find. But in hindsight, I'm like, you have a footprint. So I don't know how much that goes. <laughs> like, I don't, you're going to have to tell me more about this case before I have opinions. Okay. So now they're starting to get into the suspect's. Initially, they looked at the counselors, who I assume are all women, because then some guy goes, I don't know why, it's just something you do, because it was obviously a male attacker. Okay. So I'm like, okay. It was the 70s. Yeah. The idea of a woman being bad was, like, so out of question. So they looked at surrounding property owners, people who lived nearby, and they ruled them out as well. After finding nothing, they do a foot search, right? Okay. And this is in the Locust Grove area. Okay. Now, it's a very old um, area with a lot of abandoned farmhouses and cellars and just a lot of hills and caves. And they thought that they would find evidence somewhere, which, I mean, they were really looking through every nook and cranny of this, like, 
vast land. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do find something. And I was like, you guys actually found something. Yeah. That's just crazy. So what did they find? So there's three main cave sites. One is described as a cave, but it was actually called a cellar. Mm-hmm. And at the opening of this cave slash cellar, um, someone built four little fires. Okay. So initially, so they... are we thinking four people or a crazy person or a very cold person? How cold is it in that cave? Um, <laughs> I, don't know. Like, I would maybe build four fires and then sit right in the middle of them. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I get cold I really easily. <laughs> no, you would have to be literally right next. To I would it. actually just sit in the fire. Right. So anyway. <laughs> and you sleep peacefully. That's the thing, too. <laughs> But they're thinking that this is more, like, symbolic, like a ritual or a ceremony. How that didn't even occur to me. Me too, but I mean. Okay, so, ooh, okay. Yeah. They also find a pair of sunglasses that was taken from the camp, the plastic tape that was used to put over the flashlight, and photographs of three separate women. And to me, I'm like, okay, what does this mean? Wait, women, not the girls. Women, not the girls. (sighs) Okay. Yeah. Continue. So they're like, what does this mean? What connection does this person have well, to this? Get out of it. What does it mean? Well, okay, okay. Don't okay, leave right, me hanging okay, like okay. that. So they put out these pictures, right? And they give it to media, TV, news channels, newspapers. They give it to everybody. Okay. And the calls start coming in. They do a lot of work, but they connect it to this guy, Gene Leroy Hart. He is a convicted rapist who escaped from a county prison four years ago. Oh, God. And they found torn up pieces of a wedding picture at the cave slash cellar, reconstructed it. And identified the people in it. They found that Jean was once working as a photographer, like, in the jail. Because they had that as a job that they could do. To just go to weddings and take pictures? No, just to develop the pictures. Oh, I was gonna say. No. <laughs> We're just gonna let uh, this convicted rapist go no. out to the biggest party of the night? No, and... he just worked as an assistant, so he would oh, take the film God. and develop it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He worked there as a photo assistant in the post-stage where you develop them, like I said. And they were able to determine that the wedding picture found at the cave was one of the pictures that Jean had worked on. And that cellar slash cave, I don't know why they just refer it as both, but cellar slash cave, right? Okay. Is actually where Jean grew up. Like, what do you they mean where he grew it, up? Well, they refer to it as his, quote, boyhood home. Okay. So, I, so like, that's where the bus would pick him up? I, <laughs> I don't... Was... <laughs> I'm so, not even trying to be mean, but, like, if you're calling this his home, was he homeless? Or, like, did a whole family inhabit that place? Like, I don't... They don't go into it. I'm picturing, it. like, a cave where bears live. And that's what it looked like, really. I don't know if they just mean it's a spot that he would really frequent, but also around that area was um, different reservations for um, Native Americans. So okay. I don't know if they mean it's just a place that he would frequent and he had family that lived nearby because that does end up being true. Okay. He does have family in the surrounding area. Um, but it's it's unclear. They call it his boyhood home. Do with that what you will. Mm-hmm. This all leads to him being charged with their murder. But they're looking more into who Gene is. And they find out that in 1973 he had been in the Mays County Jail under the old sheriff's, sheriff's purview. So like under his management. Okay. Mark? Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Now he saw the bars because his mom brought him a file in a Bible. Oh no, she is not disgracing what? the Lord like that. What the hell is that? <sighs> I always say this to my little sisters. I'm like, you do some shit that ends you in prison. I will visit you there, but I will not pay your bail. Mm-mm. I will tell you what, Ronnie and Jackie. I will not <laughs> bring a nail file for you. And Sam, rot. 
Blue, I would maybe bring a nail file. No, blue, I would bring. I would do I it would myself. I would bring all of the nail files. For blue, I'd be there right there. I'm like, you have to let me finish. You have to let me finish. <laughs> so Jean escapes with the nail file from the Bible. Damn. <laughs> but ten God days is later, like, this is not what Bibles are for. It's not because he's captured ten days later. Well, <laughs> there. That's what happens when you mess with the Lord? <laughs> I'm just saying. Coming for you. It's guys. crazy though because after a few weeks of him being back, he escapes again. Okay, who's in charge here at um, this prison? It's Pete Weaver. He's the sheriff at the time. Well, he's no good. And I'll tell you what. Well, I know we have bigger fish to fry, but and well, that actually plays um, no a good. role in something later on. Okay, let's keep going. Um, then yeah. I want to get there tonight. So they try. <laughs> yeah, guys, it's eight o'clock. We are pooped. I'm a little tired. <laughs> <laughs> As you would say to Penny, I'm a little toy. <laughs> I'm a little toy at Penny. <laughs> Penny on. is my new dog, yeah. you guys. Okay. <laughs> Jean escapes the second time, only this time he is nowhere to be found. Mm. They now they know Why didn't they check his quote unquote boyhood home? I, I mean really. Know. I'm sure that's they what they're did. gonna call it. The- I didn't see the four fires he lit. Come on. They know he did stay in the Locust Grove area. But it's like he didn't have a fear of authorities and ever being caught because people would literally... Because he already escaped prison twice. No. I mean... <laughs> no. For, if you're going to feel invincible. <laughs> he, I mean, he's building up the reputation to feel of that way. Of course he has no respect for authority. He's already bamboozled them two times. <laughs> bamboozled. <laughs> Hoodwinked. <laughs> I'm serious. I am not joking. And he, I, I think he really did feel that sense of, like, no one can touch me. Because yeah, he felt invincible. people would spot him in town and, like, catch a glance of him. Then he'd just disappear. He'd, like, wave. Hi, honey. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to see me Say again. goodbye to the co- <laughs> <laughs> You'll never see me again. <laughs> enough, enough, enough. He struts away. You'll never see me we again. We make him a literal drag queen. We do. Jean, girl. Calm please. down. Please. Jean. Please. Not the place. Right. Not the place nor the time. Jean, you belong in prison. God. So, Jean was originally in prison serving four to 140 years. I'm sorry. The, the difference between those two? It's so it's, big. It, Jean, we'll tell you what. It's either going to be four years or 140 <laughs> and... I, I don't know what good behavior is going to get you. Yeah, but you can develop some photos in the meantime. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. So for, you said he was a convicted rapist. Yeah. He um, also had charges of kidnapping and burglary. Okay. Now, do he, we know what the rape charge is? We do. We hear of an incident that happened in 1966, which is I, which is what I believe is the reason why he is in prison. Okay. Um, and we will get into that later. Okay. Or maybe very soon. Well, Stick around. I'm, I'm dying in it. Yeah. Now, in 1977, they did know it was him. They had all these links to it being him, but they couldn't find him for four years, so he stays missing for that long. Like, they couldn't physically get him. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because after he escaped um, prison, they just couldn't locate him. Right. Okay. I want to get into some of the racist antics. <laughs> That okay. pop up in this doc surrounding Gene because he is a Native American. Mm-hmm. And while the doc makes some really good points for how this cape might have been skewed because of that, um, I just want to right off the bat say there's no doubt in my mind that he did it. Oh, okay. Especially in light of recent news, which you'll hear about in part two. Okay. Um, but I also think it's an important discussion to have because I think it did play a role in 
and how the investigation happened. And well, can I just quickly say my of take on something like this? I think it's, like, really great that we live in a time where we're, like, oh, they arrested that Native American man in 1970. Was it racially charged? Like, now we have the ability and the, like, I guess just, like, understanding to, like, see a minority being charged for something in the past and be like, let's look into that and make sure it went well and, like, it it went the right way. And I think Um, they do that beautifully And that's good because, I mean, he may be a guilty piece of shit, but on the off chance that he is not, he probably won't have great legal help, um, being that he is... His childhood home was a cave. <laughs> I mean, no, but... It, right? And, yeah, then, and then on top of that, he's a minority. And I know that a lot of minorities in Native American communities get railroaded. Because like you were saying before, um, a lot of times they have different police forces. And it's not like the one cohesive government that's helping or hurting. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think it's great that this documentary like kind of goes into like how could this have been racially charged. Um, but at the same time... It is also possible that it was racially charged, but that they got the right guy, which exactly. sucks because I'm sure they thought it was him day one because he was a Native American and they just so happened to be right. Right. And if they are, it's just like, because he is a Native American, you just want to make sure you're going through all the proper channels because you know how minorities get treated within the justice system. Yeah. They just get treated so poorly. They don't get treated the same way as white people do. And I just want to make sure that they got through all the proper channels to make sure that they got this piece of shit. Right. And then, so then when they did, yeah, put him away. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think they do that beautifully of talking about... um Native Americans that do live in this area, they do a great job of that. They have Gary Pitchlin, who is a formal legal advisor for the Native American Center. And he just sort of gives us some context as to how Native Americans were being treated in that area. They weren't really trusting of white lawyers or white law enforcement even. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were always also always seen as less than. Yeah. Now, one of the current reporters also says that he believes Gene was at first being made a scapegoat, which is, you know, racial bullshit. It really goes into how Native Americans were seen as an inconvenience, and they were using that as a way to justify how white police officers treated them. Yeah. Now, I'm not really caught up on the entire racist history in Oklahoma, but it doesn't sound too far off or like an insane theory. Like, I can totally see that as being plausible. Yeah, for because sure. We know time and time again how minorities get treated, especially Native Americans. Yeah, especially Native Americans. Because like I said, they're like, their government is constantly trampled on by the white government. And it's just not like their police force and stuff like that doesn't have as much jurisdiction when it comes to things. But those are the people that they're looking out for. Like, it's tough because I, I mean, I hope it's not the case today, but I think it would be naive to say it isn't. Um, but I think that white police officers would rather pin it on a Native American than pin it on a white person with money. A hundred percent. Like, I, and we do, you know, I'm just going to say it now. One of the theories that they think um, why that could be true is because he did escape twice under, like, the purview. And I guess that means the management of the current sheriff. Mm-hmm. And he was really leading this charge. So they were thinking that the sheriff felt so embarrassed that he really right. wanted to hone in on Gene. He wanted to get back at him. Exactly. Which, I mean... Way. Well, I mean, if I were the sheriff, I'd be embarrassed too. But guess who is to blame there? 
It's you, you didn't check the goddamn Bible. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Rule number Please. one, if books are coming in or out, you check them. If we check butts in prison, you bet your ass we better be checking Bibles. Butts. Right. Someone put that on T-shirts. <laughs> if you're checking butts in prison, you bet your ass we're checking right. Bibles. They will put a whole thing up a butthole, but they're not going to open the goddamn Bible. So one um, incident in particular that happened during the 70s is that Native Americans were going through a relocation program, quote unquote, that was sponsored by the government to get them out of the reservation areas. They wanted this to, quote, enhance employability, give them training and help them find jobs. And all of that is in air quotes. Because you know mm-hmm. damn well that's not the reason. Because unless you were just born yesterday, you know something shady is going on when the government wants to move a whole race of people. Oh, please. It's just white people trying to steal their land and trample all over their lives once again. Literally. So Gary Pitchlin, the former legal advisor for the Native American Center, explains that it was actually a plan to abandon those people in the metropolitan areas and no longer have financial responsibility for them in their homelands. Like, mm-hmm. they didn't want the responsibility of them being on their reservation. Right. Given all this, mm-hmm. they have a history for not trusting police. And guess what? In 2022, they still don't have a good reason. So... No, absolutely they don't. They don't have a good reason to trust police, is what we're saying. Yeah. Just <laughs> I don't want that to be taken out of context. <laughs> no, of course. While I think Broken Arrow has a history of racist bullshit, I want to reiterate again that I do think they got the right guy. And I'm thinking... I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I'm thanking God that they were able to identify him and if like get him, put him in jail, lock away the key, throw it away, you know, the whole jib jab, Mm -hmm. but go through all the proper channels is what I'm saying. Right. And with all this, as if this isn't enough of a like burden, the parents were struggling so much. Of course. They describe in the doc how hard it was for them to see news covering the death of their daughters every single day. Like, it was in every newspaper. It was on every TV channel. And not only that, but they have to deal with this missing suspect who police are telling them, it's this guy, it's this guy. And then also dealing with the support for him from the Native American community. Right. So it's like you're balancing all these different things and you just lost a loved one. It's that cannot be easy. That is not easy. Denise's mother, Betty, who we love, specifically talks about how people would just come up to her on the street and voice their like unwanted opinions like, oh, you know, that Gene guy did it. Um, I'm a little bit harping on the fact that you said that he was getting that Gene was getting support from the Native American community. I really think we should normalize throwing the trash of your community away and not letting it stereotype your community, we can just all come to an understanding that people in all communities can be absolute shit and it is not a reflection on the community as a whole. So the Native American community in Oklahoma can say, we do not claim that gene guy. Get him the hell out of here. We are good people. He is not. He is not part of us. You know what I'm saying? Right. I, I, but because of all the stress on their community, they're like, okay, we're not going to let you guys pin it on the one Native American know, guy that was there. And the, it's it such sucks a- because it's the same thing with black people because they are mistreated by the police time and time again that whenever a black person does something, even if it's wrong, you want to say, I'm sure it's because they're being mistreated because of the history of mistreatment. You know what I'm saying? Of course. And it's that history of mistrust that immediately brings you to be like, oh, no, no, no. Like, we need to, like, wrap this person in our arms. They're a part right. of our community. Because more often than not, it is wrong. 
But when it's not, it's like, oh, it's so hard because you want to support the member of your community. But at the same time, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. Of course. So I'm like, oh my, throw him away. We won't blame you. We don't, just don't claim him. Exactly. Just, just leave him there. But that's also why I thought it was important to include, obviously I was not going to, not going to not include this, but important to talk about how this affected the parents as well. Right. Because that could, like I said, not easy to deal with. In response to like people coming up to Betty, which is Denise's mother, she goes, where did they get the nerve to tell me that? And I was like, Betty, literally, period. Could not have said it better myself. What gives you the right to go up to a parent who lost their child in like the such a gruesome way and voice your opinion shut the fuck up can you just like wrap your head around some of the things people say like i really can't. people are people <laughs> people and they say what they say no but really like <laughs> at the end of the day I, people when they are approaching a grieving person will say the most craziest fucked up shit and they just think they're being like, I bet the person, person being like, he did it. I bet they thought they were being helpful, which is so fucking bananas to me. Right. And it's like, like, you shouldn't, oh my God, you shouldn't have to feel like you have an obligation to understand where they're coming from. No. Like, you're saying something fucked uh-uh, up. Done. Get away Bye. from me. Lori Lee's um, family, Sherry and Bo, reflect on how the, well, not they, Um, it's this is all coming from Sherry. I misspoke. Um, she reflects on how naive she was in not understanding how the Native Americans were feeling, which I thought was very, like... That's gigantic of her, because I would have been like, nope, everybody who is not my family can go fuck themselves right now. So we get into more evidence of, like, why police officers thought it was Jean. Mm-hmm. And it makes some good points. Because at first glance, it doesn't really seem like they have much, but considering his history of violence and the things they found at the cave site... And it being close to his, quote, boyhood home. I mean, it's it's a really good start. Yeah. So the incident that I mentioned before that put him away originally for four 240 years happened in 1966. He went to Tulsa, kidnapped um, two women at gunpoint, took them to the woods, raped them, and just l- left them for dead. Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, really, like... And I'm like, with this history of violence, I cannot discount that he would not be capable of doing this. Absolutely. Coupled with the other evidence, obviously. Well, and not to mention that he escaped prison twice, so where was the reform? He didn't get to have any. Right. Not that, you know, our prisons really do much reforming, but, you know. I know. I gotcha. (laughs) Thank you. Harvey says, quote, we definitely need to get this guy whether... And then he cuts it off and says, if he didn't do it, he tried to kill some others and escape from jail. And he's looking at 200 some odd years. And I just know in the back of my mind, he wanted to say whether he did it or not, we should get him. Oh my God. He's just just lucky that this time he got the right guy. No, literally. 10 days after the murder, more than 200 people show up to search the woods for Gene. Now they know he's like living off the land. So they explore one area that they think he might do you mean 200 civilians 200 people like civilians civilians? not like government people no it was civilians it was made up of state troopers um osbi agents tulsa pd and people on the reserve even came to help search Damn. So it's like this whole well, thing. Like, of pe- no, like, yeah, I know what you mean. Civ- 200 people were like, if the government's not going to find him, we will. <laughs> no, Give this me wasn't- my nail file and my Bible. I'm going to go find that bitch. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't led by just like random people. It was like an organized It was actually led by thing. me. I- <laughs> 
lives to tell the tale. That's not that far. That's not that long ago. I don't know why I said live long to tell the tale. Okay. Anyways, they get helicopters and quote super dogs to from out of state to come and search for Gene. Now, in, in an interview with one of the officers, they say that he must be very good at hiding himself because he covered his tracks so well. And it's really frustrating because the dogs were able to pick up his scent, but they would follow it, then stop. Follow it and then stop. So it was like this back and forth of like, okay, where is he? Is he just jumping in the air and like levitating? Like, what the fuck? They do think that because he's been in these woods for about four years now, that makes him an expert and he's just been surviving in the woods. So he knows the territory very well. Hmm. And they're thinking that no way he could survive that long just in the middle of the woods. Like, he would need to be staying with someone, which makes sense because he had some family that lived close by the area. <gasps> Get them. Right. Well, after a couple of months, they have no leads until Harvey goes undercover to get more information about this guy. Okay. And they do find one. So after talking to some people, he mentions how he like went to some bars and were like, talk to me about this. I'll buy you a beer. And it's just like all that nonsense. And it does lead to a lead. I was going to say clue instead of lead because I didn't want to say lead twice, but he gets a lead. It gets leads a, to a lead. Yeah, it leads to a lead. Isn't that what a lead's all about? <laughs> They find out that Gene is staying with a medicine man who recently a lost his brother. medicine man? I know. I, I didn't it. know what it meant. Yeah. I just love that. Why can't we just fucking simplify everything? Right. I mean, you're a doctor. You're a medicine, medicine man. man. Please. So that's the other. I don't know if they meant doctor or because he was Native American, if it meant something else. Maybe like herbal medicine or something. Possibly. Which, is Which I mean is. Ass. Yeah, I mean is. Medicine. I mean, people pay a lot of money for that shit now. They really do. Oh <laughs> Wait, my yeah, God. Yeah, Whole Foods. Right. Ever been to Connecticut? Like, they Jones? mark up this I mean, shit really. for what? <laughs> Anyways, they look through obituaries and found a guy named Sam Pigeon. And he had recently lost his brother and is a medicine man. Ooh. It's him. They think he's possibly holed up in a cabin in Coxon Hills, which is the area where the camp was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very easy to hide in and get lost in because, like I said, it's very thick, tangled forests. Okay. They were able to locate Sam's house, and they stalked it for about six to seven hours and went up to the door. But the wife answered it. They tell her what's up, give her the rundown, and they're like, your husband's in some deep shit, girl. Like, if we don't find Jean... Someone else is going to shoot him on sight. Like, we're going to take him in alive. If you leave this to keep bubbling up, someone else is going to do something way worse. Mm -hmm. Like, we're officials. Trust us. So she hops in their car and drives them a couple of miles on this twisty-ass road when finally a cabin comes into sight. Now, it's just on the side of a hill. And like I said, all dirt paths. And this cabin just pops up out of nowhere. It's crazy. Hmm. They moved in on the cabin and they call for backup. They have four cop cars on their way and they're going to surround the cabin and infiltrate to prevent Gene from escaping. And that's where part two ends. <gasps> and then at the end, I put anticipation. Oh, anticipation. you wrote anticipation, that Carly Simon song. And I guess I don't know that song. So I was thinking in my head, you're so vain. Oh my God. <laughs> You probably think this part is about, about you. you. Yeah, that's part two. Sherry. Part three, we get into a lot. And follow along on our Patreon if you want part two right away. <laughs> we don't have a I'm Patreon. like, when did we start that? Jeez. Uh, maybe we should start it right now. Right? I was like, did I miss a meeting? <laughs> 
So be sure to listen to part two as soon as it comes out. Set your notifications. Do whatever you have to do. But you're going to want to hear this. Thanks for listening. You can catch us on Instagram at the Chalkline Pod, Twitter at the Chalkline Pod, and follow along with our YouTube channel. The link is in our Instagram bio. Tune in next Thursday for another story.